begin this morning uh, our reading in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. I do ask that you continue to pray for me as I bring this message to you. Trust the Lord will be glorified in all that we do and say. It says in Matthew chapter 28, <clears throat> In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. This is a very important passage of Scripture because it gives us some insight into the lives of the disciples during those three days. These women are coming to the sepulcher of Jesus to get their final bit of closure. They are coming to see Jesus for the last time. They know that this is the last time that they can safely enter into the tomb of Jesus and anoint his bodies and, and, and touch the coverings one last time and bid him farewell uh, before the tomb is going to have to be shut and sealed forever and they will never get that experience of being close to him again. That's what they're doing. You know, we can relate to this because we've all lost loved ones in our lives. Those that were special to us, those that we enjoyed being around, seeing them smile, hearing them laugh, listening to them talk. So we know what it's like when we go by the casket for the last time. When we touch their body for the last time, when we look down at their sleeping face and, and we bid it farewell, when we say goodbye, all the emotions... They're coming here to say goodbye for the last time. The past few days have been very traumatic in their lives. They have watched their best friend, their, their, the one that they love, the one that they have sat under his ministry and listened to him teach as he has taught them many, many things. Mary Magdalene is a is a recipient of the special divine power of God. Uh, she was one that had seven devils cast out of her. She was alone in the darkness for no telling how long. And you know, when, when we look at people in the, in the New Testament that were demon-possessed, men such as Legion, who had a, a thousand devils in him, and he was a man that was literally insane. Uh, there was no mental capacity there. Uh, he lived outside uh, of the city in the graveyard. And this is not a nice, pretty graveyard like we have today. Uh, this is, you know, uh, holes in the stone. And he lived in the caves, which meant more than likely he was rolling these stones away and sleeping with these dead bodies. Okay? This man is nuts. Uh, it says in one place that they tried to restrain him. They would bind him with chains, and he would break the chains, uh, and he would throw rocks at people, and, 
And, and no doubt this was a man that mothers would warn their children about. Don't go near the graveyard. You know there's that madman, legion out there. Men that were demon-possessed could not think for themselves. I imagine it was like being trapped in darkness. We read of another account where the young boy would throw himself into the fire and into the water where he was constantly trying to commit suicide. I mean, he had no mental, there was no, he was not in control. And that's what it's like to be demon-possessed is to be in your body but not in control of your body. And so Mary Magdalene here is, is, is a woman that has had uh, deliverance by Jesus. And, and, and she's one that has had the demons cast out and she's been liberated from a state of tyranny and oppression by her loving Savior. She knows the love of Jesus. She knows the power of Jesus. She knows the grace of Jesus. And yet just a few days before this moment in her life, she was there at the foot of the cross. As we find, I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke. She is there with the mother of Jesus. She is at the foot of the cross. She has watched her Lord and Savior be absolutely uh, torn to bits by whips. As the Roman uh, took the cat of nine tails and with every, uh, every blow put all of his strength in there to tear limb from limb. That was his goal. To see just how much skin he could remove by each lash. And so she watched as this Savior was beaten to where he was unrecognizable. The prophecy of this in Isaiah says that his visage, the way that he looked, was more mar than that of any man. In other words, he was beaten so severely that he did not look human. As he marched to the cross, you could see his his ribs and his, uh, his bones in his arms and his face. As he is wearing the crown of thorns. And, 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 and they are looking at this. And, and they are seeing the one that they love. You can imagine anyone that you love uh, being brutalized and tortured. And it's not just you hearing about it. You're not hearing about the torture that they endured. You're witnessing it. You're seeing it. You're seeing the Romans drive nails into his hands and into his feet. You see him uh, as the cross is raised up in its upright position. And you see him as, as the blood is trickling down the cross. And you see him uh, gasping for air as he's trying to breathe. No doubt this is a traumatic experience. For these women. They saw. The cry from the cross. It is finished. As he cries out with. With a victory cry. This is Christ. At the moment that he has paid in full. For all the sins of all of God's people. And all that the father had sent him. To do is done. The will of the Father is done. And this is the will of Him which has sent me. That of all that He has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. Jesus at that moment had secured that 
for his people that they would be raised incorruptible because he has paid for their sin debt. It is paid in full and it is accepted of the Father. Jesus cried, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Jesus said, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down. Jesus could have held onto that cross for a lot longer because he had the power to hold on to his life. He had all power in heaven and earth. And no man could take his life from him. But when Jesus said, it is finished, he gave up the ghost. He surrendered the ghost. Hebrews tells us that he became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. He submitted himself to the death of the cross. He submitted himself unto death. And when the moment came, he came under the power of death. He died. He submitted to the power of death because that was the power that held all of his children captive, was death. You remember the Garden of Eden? God told Adam and Eve, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You'll be brought under the power of death. And so Christ submitted himself unto death because Adam and Eve had, had brought themselves under the power and the tyranny of death so that it, at some point in everyone's life, they're going to die. And they're going to stay that way. It's not a place where you go and you come back from. Right? The power of death is that it holds you captive. And so Jesus goes to the cross. And there he suffers and he bleeds and he dies. And he submits himself unto death. To be held in the power of death. And these women see death as it lays hold on their Savior. They see his body grow cold. They see the life fade from his eyes. No doubt they see the very last moment when the Roman soldier comes to Jesus. Uh, and he was going to break his legs. Because that's what they would do to these criminals when they continued to hang on the cross. If they were not dead yet, they would come by and they would take a hammer and they would break both of the leg bones so that the man could no longer lift his body up to take a breath because that's how you died on the cross. You didn't die from the nails. You didn't die uh, uh, from the whip. You didn't die from any of that. You died because you suffocated to death. Because as you're hanging there and your arms are above your head and all your weight is bearing down in order to breathe, you have to lift yourself up to take the pressure off your lungs. And so they would break the legs so that they could no longer lift their body up to take a breath. But when they got to Jesus, they recognized that he had already expired. So they took their spear and they thrust it into his side right to where his heart would be. And there came out blood and water, signifying that Jesus was already dead because the water had separated from the blood cells. They watched as the Romans pierced his side. No doubt they heard the man say, Surely this was the Son of God. 
all their hopes are gone. We think about the, the hope that they had, that this was the one that was going to save Israel. You know, the, the, the disciples looked for Jesus as a king, that he was the Messiah, that he was the chosen one, that he was the one that God had promised to send that was going to restore Israel to his rightful place. But now their king, now their Messiah is dead. He's dead. And with him, all their hopes, all that they hope for, is gone too. So they're coming to say goodbye one last time. They've witnessed his torture. They've witnessed his burial. They've seen the power that death has over him. They loved him because each one of them had had a personal experience with the Lord Jesus. They come here expecting to find nothing but what they left here. A dead Messiah. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. He is risen, as he said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. So they come to the grave of Jesus. They come to the place where the one that they laid in the tomb who had been beaten and crucified was to be laid, they come to say goodbye for the last time and to impart one last gift, spices. And as they are going, the ground begins to tremble and begins to shake. And they get there and the stone is rolled away. And they come to the grave and they see the, the stuff is laid out. And, 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 and by the way, when you, when you compare all four Gospels, you get a better picture. That's why there's four Gospels. So what happens is these women, they come here, they run, they see the men laid out, they, they look like they're all dead, they run into the tomb. Mary sees that Jesus is gone. They, she sees that the, Mary Magdalene sees that the, the, the clothes are laid there. And she takes off because she thinks the worst. She says, they've taken the body of my Lord. Somebody's stolen his body. So they come and 
And uh, she comes and she tells Peter and James, Peter and John, Peter and John, that somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. The other women, they come in and they actually go into the tomb. And that's when they have the encounter with the two angels. And the angels say, he's not here. He's not been stolen. He's alive. He's, he has conquered death. He has, he has been made victorious over the grave. He submitted himself unto death. And then he conquered it. He annihilated it. He has come to rule over it. He's alive. You don't have to come to say goodbye anymore. Come and see the place where he lay. Come and see the place where he lay. I preached on this passage when I was in Lexington. And the, the, the theme of my message was. There are two. There are two. Uh, two, two things that are commanded here. There is a gospel invitation. And that is come and see. And I made the point that Jesus had already risen. That was already an established fact. And, and their coming and seeing the place where he lay does nothing as far as Jesus is concerned. It's already a fact. Jesus is already risen. But there is a gospel invitation for his disciples to come look on the place where he lay and to see it with their own eyes and have a personal experience with that reality. And that's what the gospel invitation is. The gospel invitation is not an invitation for you to come and make something a reality. It's not to come and make your salvation sure. It's, it's not an invitation for you to come and to secure your spot in heaven. No. The gospel invitation is simply come and see your salvation. Come and see what has been done for you. Come and see that Jesus has made your spot in heaven sure. Come and see that your sins are completely gone. Come and see. Come and have a personal experience with divine realities. And then there is the gospel imperative, which is go and tell. We are never invited to come and see without being told to go and tell. He says, come and see uh, the place where he lay, and then go and see. I mean, go and tell his disciples, those out there that are not aware yet of this reality, go and tell them what has been done. Dear child of God, you have been blessed today to see some things. You are blessed to know some things. If you have sat in church for any length of time, you know how salvation works. You know that, that Jesus has saved you and, and, and that he has paid for your sins and that there is nothing you could ever do to mess it up. Thanks be to God because of if anybody could mess something up, it would be me. <laughs> but what can separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ. 
And you are invited to come and look at these things and to know these things and to understand these things, but you knowing them and looking into them does not change them, right? Does not make them real. It simply views them as real. Jesus really died. He really paid for sin. That is certain. God was satisfied because Jesus cried out, it is finished. You understand that? So when you come to church and you put your faith in Jesus, you're not making your home in heaven secure. You're believing that it is secure. Not by your effort, but by Jesus' effort, right? He did it all because he has to do it all because I can do nothing in and of myself. So there is a come and see, and then what is, there's the gospel imperative, which is, Go and tell. Now that you see these things, understand these things, and know these things, go and tell. The point I want to make from what we have here is that what they saw that morning, when they left home, no doubt they left home crying. No doubt they were in tears. They've been crying for days. <laughs> They've been in tears for days because you know, as well as anybody, that when you lose somebody, you don't get over it in a day. You don't get over it in a lifetime. It changes you forever. There's a part of you that is gone. There's a part of you that is missing. Now, there are healing aspects and hopes that we have and we come to have and should have as Christians that should heal a part of us as far as what we expect one day. And that should, bring, that should bring great healing. There's always going to be that lump in your chest because you don't have somebody that you used to have. There's, that's, that's not going away. That's, that's just part of it. But there is the hope and the peace and the comfort that comes from knowing that because of Jesus, you're going to see him again. But these women have had their lives ultimately changed. They left home crying. They've, they've left home uh, in great mourning. They, they've no doubt been a solemn trip to the grave of Jesus. But now they've come to where Jesus is. They've seen the place where he's laid. And now they leave with great rejoicing. Now they leave happy. Now they leave with fear and great joy is what the Bible says. Great joy. They are overcome with joy. They are happy, Levi, because Jesus is not there. He's alive. They're happy. And what they saw has changed their lives completely. And it has made them want to go and tell. Paul tells Timothy, and I, I say all that to tell you that the gospel, the very crux of the gospel... What makes the gospel the gospel is not necessarily the death of Jesus. That is an important element. That's a very important element. It's crucial to the gospel. But I'm going to tell you what makes the gospel the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. 
Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this is really where I wanted to take my text from, and I will go through this very quickly, but he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Thou therefore, my son, be thou strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We are to garner our strength from Jesus. We are to garner our strength from the death of Christ. We are to garner our strength from the resurrection of Christ because life is hard and you, don't, you cannot make it if you are weak, right? You need a strength that is outside of yourself. And so Paul says to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Listen to this. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, if you have come uh, to the church of Jesus, to the house of Jesus, and you have confessed faith in Jesus, and you have been baptized into the waters of His death, and been raised again in the likeness of His resurrection, you are a soldier of Jesus. When you are baptized into His death, raised into the likeness of His resurrection to walk in newness of life, you immediately become a soldier. You are a warrior. And warriors have to stand up on the battlefield even when life's hard. Even when you don't feel like it. And so Paul urges this man who has gone through all types of hardships. And he says, you endure you keep going, you keep pressing, and you endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are some in the kingdom of Christ that have come and entered into his death and burial and resurrection and are part of his visible kingdom that are good soldiers. But there are some that are not very good soldiers. There are some that come in to the Lord's house and then they leave and never return. There are some that come into the Lord's house and, and they go out and they live in their own way. And they live in wickedness and they live. They're soldiers of Jesus, but they're not very good soldiers. <laughs> I've seen so many Christians get overwhelmed with bitterness and unforgiveness. And I'm telling you... Uh, dear child of God, if you are a soldier of Jesus Christ, you should never be unforgiving and bitter at anyone. That you should be loving and forgiving and merciful. I, 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 I don't see how you can. Uh, Jesus says that when we are to pray, we are to say, Father, forgive them as I forgive my debtors. Well, listen, if you're not forgiving your debtors, I don't want Jesus. If I'm not forgiving my debtors, I don't want Jesus forgiving me like that. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> if Jesus treated us like we treat many of our enemies, oh, I'm telling you, dear child of God, I tremble at that thought. Many people get out there and, and blast people on Facebook and just plaster their sins on, on social media. Uh, could you imagine if Jesus took all your sins and plastered them for the world to see and began to publicly condemn you before everyone else? Oh, dear child of God, that would be a 
frightful thing, would it not, to have you standing before the King of Kings and Him putting all your sins and iniquity out there for everyone to know. Resentment. I've seen soldiers in the house of God get overwhelmed with anger and and frustration. I've seen soldiers in the house of God uh, get overwhelmed with backbiting and gossip and railing. Oh, there's our good, those are not the good soldiers. They're soldiers in the kingdom of Christ. They're not good soldiers. Good soldiers endure hardness. Good soldiers turn the other cheek. Good soldiers have mercy. Good old soldiers come to church on Sunday morning. Right? Listen, when good soldiers, when the trumpet is sounded in an army, who assembles? Right? When the trumpet is sounded in the army, who assembles? It's the good soldiers. It's the ones that are fit for battle. It's the ones that are ready to go out on the battlefield. The one that's back at the barracks still asleep in his cot, <laughs> right? He's not a very good soldier. You want, you want old Bernie on your side who's, who's late for, for routines and details every morning when the bugle is played, when they're called to salute? I tell you, that's not who I want standing by my side in the heat of battle, right? <laughs> no, sirree, I want the man that's going to be there when the trumpet's played, when the old glory is risen, right? <laughs> Endure hardness as a good soldier. I'll get off my rabbit trail. But he says, No man that worth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Paul gives some very good advice. He says, Listen, you were born, you're gonna die. You're only here for a short time, and you've been called into the into the ranks of Jesus Christ. Don't entangle yourself with the affairs of this life. I've got news for you. It does not matter. It does not matter who's president. <laughs> right? And uh, listen. Though I mean, yeah, we've got a responsibility to fulfill our our duty as 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 citizens. We're to be good citizens, and that means part of that is voting, right? So I'm not up here saying don't vote. Don't worry about who's uh, or, or don't be concerned with who's president, but I'm telling you, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Politics don't matter. And when you entangle yourself in politics, you are going against what Paul is telling you to do here. <laughs> right? I, I see so many of God's children, and I feel so sorry for them. I do. Because I know that they are Bible-believing, church-going Christians that get on Facebook, and that's all they want to talk about. And I'm sitting there saying... God have mercy. They are so consumed by the state of this world that they've forgotten that their world, this world, is not their home. This world's not my home. And if Rome burns down and the world burns down, I don't care. I'm going to a place where Jesus is king and there are no troubles. They are miserable too, I tell you. People that get on, uh, they just, they get so concerned with what's happening at the border and, and, and what laws are being passed and what's happening here. And they're just miserable because they're worried that somebody's going to come take something away from them. 
It's no wonder that the church grew better in times of persecution. You want to know why? Because they had nothing to hold on to outside of Jesus. <laughs> right? They put all that they had in Jesus. No man that warreth entangleth himself in the affairs of this wife. Get over it. Pay attention to Jesus. Then he says, he says, And if a man also strive for the mastery, is he not crowned unless except he, he strive lawfully. In other words, when you're running a race, you've got to abide by the rules. You cannot run the race of Jesus and not abide by the rules. He goes on. The husbandman that laboreth must first be partaker of the fruits. And in the Greek, this literally means he that labors must uh, before partaking of the, he must labor before partaking of the fruit. In other words, you got to do a little digging before you can do a little reaping, right? But then he gets to where I want to get this morning. He says, remember, in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your labors, in the midst of all this, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David, and that's important, he was of the seed of David because it was to David that the promise was made. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, Thou will not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Psalm 16, 10. That's a promise of Jesus' resurrection. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. That Jesus came back to life from the dead according to my gospel. When we ask, what did Paul go everywhere preaching? Where did Paul go everywhere preaching? What was the message? What was the good news that Paul went everywhere preaching? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 23. Let's go through these very quickly. Acts chapter 23. Verse 6. Here towards the end of Paul's life, he says, <clears throat> Acts chapter 23, verse 6. It says, But when Paul perceived that the one part was Sadducee and the other part Pharisee, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee and son of the Pharisee of the hope and resurrection. Of the dead, I am called in question. What was Paul preaching? The resurrection. Chapter 24, verse 14. He says, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my Father, believing all things which were written in the law and in the prophet, and have hope toward God, uh, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Paul says, they call the way that I believe heresy. Listen, don't ever be offended when somebody calls you a heretic. If you believe the Bible. Now you need to make sure that you're not a heretic. You need to make sure that what you believe does line up in the Bible. But when you are certain, when your faith is certain and full, Never be offended when what, what they call you believe is heresy. Never, don't ever be offended by that because they said the same thing to Paul. 
Paul embraced it. He says, after the way that they call heresy, so I serve the living and worship the living God. Paul was preaching the resurrection of Jesus. If believing in the resurrection of Jesus and of the dead and of the, of the just and the unjust makes me a heretic, Paul says, hey, label away. You can call me a heretic all you want because what I believe is the truth. Paul's gospel was centered around the gospel of, uh, or, or the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now listen to this. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer. Paul was constantly in hardship because of the gospel. He says, as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake. Paul had to endure, like Timothy. He is urging Timothy to endure. Why? For the good news' sake. What good news? The good news that Jesus has risen again. So that tells us, dear children of God, this morning, that we need to be willing to endure any hardship... For the gospel, and the gospel is the good news that Jesus has risen again. So what did Paul endure? I love this. It is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. What did Paul endure? He says in verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they the ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths often. Paul says, I've been beaten more. I've been starved more. I've been persecuted more. I've been uh, in, in perils more often. I've been brought to the brink of death more than they all. Listen to this. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. What's 40 times five? 40 times five. 200, right? Isn't that 40 times five? 200? I was trying to get a rise out of my boys this morning. Gideon's been doing a few uh, times tables. Right? 40 times 5 is 200. And he says minus 1. So if you take 5 off of 200, you get what? 195. Paul had received 195 stripes. They counted them. 195 stripes. And those were, not, those were not just nice little stripes. Somebody took a whip, and every lash that was laid on him was counted. 195 stripes. Thrice, three times, was I beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day, I have been in the deep. Paul was in a shipwreck where he floated around in the big ocean for a night and a day. So he was beaten 195 times, 
And that is outside of the three times that he was beaten with rods. And we have no, many, no idea how many times he was beaten, how many stripes he was given with rods as they beat him. He was stoned and left for dead. That means they threw stones at him until they thought he was dead. He was shipwrecked. Paul, why are you doing all this? He goes on to say, in journeyings often in perils of water and perils of robbers, so he'd been robbed at some point, perils of my own countrymen, perils in the, by the healer, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among fellows. Brethren, I'm telling you, he's giving an accurate description of, of the ministry. He goes, I go here, I have trouble. I go here, I have trouble. I go there, I have trouble. Everywhere I go, I have trouble. I go to my own brothers, I have trouble. I go to the heathen, those that are, are, don't hear the gospel, and I preach the gospel to them, and I have trouble. Paul, why are you doing all this? Why are you enduring all this? Why are you subjecting yourself to being beaten and stoned to death? Why are you doing this? Paul says, I endure all this, all of this, everything that I just named. I endure all things for the elect's sake. Who are the elect? Who are the elect? Those that have been chosen by God the Father in Christ before the world began. I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I've made this point many, many times. What does the word with mean? Word with means to go to, to, to accompany, right? If I go with you to the store, it means I accompany you to the store, right? If, if you say, uh, if my wife says, what do you want with the ham or whatever, you know, you pick it. If you want, what do you want with that? She's asking, what do you want to accompany that, right? When, when, when you use the word with, when my wife says, what do you want to go with the ham? We're having ham, right? <laughs> we're not having anything else. What we're having is ham. And she simply asks, what do you want to accompany that? Paul says, I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may attain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with to accompany eternal glory. So Paul is saying that there is a salvation. This is very, 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 very important for you to understand this morning. Paul is saying that there is a, a salvation that accompanies your salvation to heaven. He, he tells you in this verse that there are two salvations. There, because when he died on the cross, what did he do? He secured your home in heaven, did he not? Right? That's what he did. I'm telling you this morning, that's what he did. When Jesus died on the cross, he purchased for you eternal glory. Paul says, I endure all things for the elect's sake. They may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with to accompany eternal glory. When you believe the gospel, when you believe, 
the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead and you see your sins forgiven and you see uh, the word that has been purchased for you, you are delivered from so many things. First off, you're delivered from the oppression of sin. You realize that sin has no longer dominion over your life. That there is a Savior that has given you the victory. You are delivered from the guilt and the stain of sin in your life. You don't have to feel guilty anymore. Jesus paid for your sins. You don't have to wonder where you're going anymore. Jesus paid for your sins. You don't have to worry about this. If you believe in Jesus, you are saved. From so many things. Now, your belief in Jesus is not going to change where you wind up. Right? Just as the women coming and seeing the empty tomb does not change that Jesus had already risen. Right? What did it do? It gave them peace of mind. Right? It changed their mourning from tears to joy. When you view the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, it does not change your eternal salvation. You have been saved by Jesus, and before you even believe it, it is as sure as anything else in this world. It's done. It is finished. Jesus said so. But when you come and you view it, it changes your life personally. You now have comfort. You now have joy. You now can rejoice. That's important. Because listen, he goes on. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead in him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we believe not. Here we go. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. To who? To us. Who's under consideration? If we believe not, he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? Listen to this. He cannot deny himself because he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is the Father's will, that of all that he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again on the last day. He cannot deny himself because he will raise up those that he chose before the foundation of the world. Our belief does not negate what Jesus has done for us. Right? That's nowhere found in Scripture. The opposite is found. The gospel that we have this morning is that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if the dead rise not, then Christ be not raised. But if Christ be raised, then the dead shall raise again. Jesus was raised first. Jesus was the first being in all the world to raise in the way that he raised. So, well, Brother John, there were all, there were all types of resurrections in, in the Old and New Testament. You think of the man that was thrown in the, in, the, in the grave with, I believe it was Elijah. I believe it was Elijah. He was thrown in the grave, 
And that dead man hit the bones of Elijah and he came back to life. We think of the, the Shunammite woman's uh, son that was raised to life again. We think of the widow of Nain who received her uh, son uh, to life again. We think of Lazarus who was called out by Jesus. We think of the 12-year-old girl who was raised to life again. We think of Dorcas who was raised to life again, right? There are all these individuals who were raised to life again. But not like Jesus, right? When Jesus rose again, he rose to die no more. Jesus was the first. He's what we call the first fruits. One day, you're going to hear the trumpet sound and the voice of the archangel and the Lord of glory is coming back with a shout. Personally, I believe he's coming back and he's going to say, come forth. And I believe that the moment that happens, that the ground is going to shake. And I believe that the, the ground is going to split wide open. And every single individual on the face of planet Earth that has died and been buried, lost at sea, is going to come out of the ground. Some of them are going to be miraculously changed. Some of them are, gonna, are going to have a brand new body. Their body is going to be changed for the incorruptible must, uh, for the corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. You're not going to have the same body. It's going to be the same body, but it's going to be a different body. If that makes any sense. It's going to be the same. It's going to be you, but it's going to be changed. And it's going to be immortal. That means it's not going to have the ability to die. Not only is it not going to have the ability to die, but thanks be to God. It's going to be free from sin. I will no longer have to look at God and say, I'm sorry, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. That's what the Apostle Paul said. In my flesh dwells no good thing. But I will stand before the King of Kings, a perfectly righteous man. And all those that are alive and remain are going to be caught up in the heavens. They're going to be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And that's good news. That's good news. This morning, I want to let you know that there are many of God's children in this world. Many, 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 many. More than can be numbered. And we have no idea who is one and who's not one. The angel says, come and see the place where he lay. This morning, I trust that you've been allowed by the Spirit of God to come and see that your Savior is not here. He's alive. That's the gospel invitation.
come and see. But this morning, I give you the gospel imperative. Go and tell. Paul was willing to endure shipwreck beatings. And oftentimes, we refuse to share the gospel with our friends, our family, our co-workers. Because we're scared they'll think we're weird. The gospel invitation is come and see. Listen, go out from this place and invite people to come and see. Invite them to come to church. Invite them. I've always said this, and I'll say it again. If you feel uncomfortable sharing the gospel, we need to get together and talk about it so you can get comfortable with sharing the gospel. But until then, invite people to church so that I can share the gospel with them. If you can't do it right now, let me do it. I'm more than happy to. This is the greatest message in the world. And if you don't see how great this message is, you need to go home tonight. You need to pull out your Bible. And you need to read the death and resurrection of Jesus over and over and over again. Read every Read every gospel account. And if you don't get it yet, start over and read it again. Because I'm telling you, that's how you get it. When you realize that Jesus died for me. He conquered death for me. So that one day I personally would raise again and live with Him forever. That's the gospel message. Come and see. Go and tell. We should be willing to endure every hardship for the gospel's sake. Because listen, every one of God's children are precious. May the Lord bless you, keep you, and cause His face to shine upon you and give you peace.